Well, we continue our series in the Psalms uh, this afternoon, and in this series as we've been going, uh, so far we've seen a number of lament psalms, uh, psalms where the author is pouring out grief, pouring out sorrow to the Lord. We have looked at Psalm 3, Psalm 13, we've seen Psalm 22, which of course is also explicitly messianic. We've also looked at Psalm 40 and then Psalms 42 and 43 as well. And today, we come to yet another one, Psalm 88. And in a sense, this psalm is a climax uh, to these, these lament psalms. It is really one of the more difficult and darker psalms that we have uh, in the scriptures. And it might seem as we're in, I'm not sure which week we're in here in our series in the Psalms, but it, it might seem that we've covered a disproportionate number of these lament psalms uh, so far. And, uh, and, you know, as we're just not covering all the psalms, but we're picking and choosing some and leaving some out, we've covered quite a few of these lament psalms. It might seem disproportionate. Uh, but, but first, uh, just to say this this is actually going to be our last one in this series, the last lament psalm we're, we're planning to cover at least at this point. Uh, so we will be getting to more of these other types of psalms. But at the same time, I do think it is important to, for us to spend time in these psalms to, to grasp, to, to learn to grasp this element, this aspect of worship. Uh, understanding that Grief is very real and very, very, very painful at times, even for mature believers. I don't know that this is something, this, this idea of pain and lament uh, is something that we, we're particularly uh, good at or that we necessarily hear a lot of sermons about in our upbringing or as we've you know, come to church. Uh, and yet, as we've seen, th- these are psalms that are written to the choir master and meant for public consumption and public worship. And so it's important for us to to learn this, to spend time in these psalms, as uncomfortable as they may be at times. Uh, Learning that this is very real, this this happens to believers, believers find themselves in these situations, Uh, learning how to take our griefs to God, and of course rejecting views of the Christian life that would suggest that it should always be roses or just always should be happy. Uh, Learning when these times come upon us, how to endure these seasons and these griefs with hope and in prayer to God. And so we're hitting Psalm 88, and I invite you to turn there with me. I trust you're there, and uh, I invite you to read that with me now. Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth. A masculine of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. 
They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. As we read this, I think we can see why it is that Robert Godfrey says Psalm 88 is the bleakest psalm in the Psalter. And why it is that Derek Kidner in his commentary says there is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. I'm sure you noticed the psalm does not end with a, a note of helpfulness or hopefulness, I should say. Often laments do. You think of, of uh, Psalm 13, which we covered a few weeks ago, which begins with this cry from David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Uh, very much a, a, a psalm of lament. David is in despair. And yet that psalm ends with confidence. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And yet Psalm 88 does not end this way. It ends in seeming bewilderment. He is not out of it. Things are still very dark. And so I want us to go through this psalm today. We're going to work our way through it to spend time in it to, I hope, feel the depth of what he is lamenting, to live in this psalm for a bit, if you will. And then at the end, I want to look at some implications for us, some takeaways. So Psalm 88, the superscription here. I'll just read that again. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. Now, some of those words, it's kind of a mouthful, but some of those words are familiar to us. We've seen those in other superscriptions so far. Uh, it is a song. It is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And we noted last week in Psalms 42 and 43 that these men were temple singers. They were... Uh, given this duty by none other than David himself. And they continued. They continued to function in that way uh, late into Judah's existence before the exile. They also functioned as gatekeepers to the temple. This, again, is another psalm, as we've seen, that is written, uh, given to the choir master, which once more uh, reminds us that this song is meant, was meant for corporate singing to the people of Israel, but also to us, the church, who inherit this. Now, this might seem odd to us as we consider the content of Psalm 88 and the apparent sadness of it. It might seem like an odd thing to come together and sing all together. But again, I, I would contend, as I've said uh, throughout this series, that if that is weird to us, then that's really on us. <laughs> Uh, this is God's inspired word. It is a song that is inspired by the Spirit and given, again, to Israel and to us, the church. And this reminds us that what is being described here is no private matter. It's not just something that was unique to one individual in time. <clears throat> Rather, it is common uh, to the people of God to go through these types of seasons. And it also, I would suggest, as a as we've been seeing how the Psalms are also prayers of Christ, this also, uh, I think, sets some expectation that as the people of God experience this kind of anguish and pain, uh, that the, the, the one who would come and, and, and take on the sins of his people and, and, and die for them, the, the promised Messiah, he would also experience something of this. The, 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 the human, the, the image of God par excellence also would experience. So it sets a, a precedent for that as we sing these songs, as the, as the old covenant believers would have sang these hymns. So it's, it's to the choir master. It's meant for corporate worship. And then it says the song is according to Mahalath Leonoth, which we don't really know what that means. It is probably, I think the most likely or best guess is a, a reference to a tune of some sort. Uh, and then it says that this is a mass skill, which again is an unknown term, probably related to the type of music as well. Uh, so perhaps the more general style, it is a, a masculine, and then the more near, it's a, to the, then the tune of uh, this Mahalath Leonoth. Again, we're ultimately not entirely sure. And then the final aspect of this superscription is that it is a, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. And once more, there's some debate about who this particular individual is. 
But the best understanding seems to be that this is uh, Heman the singer that is, is mentioned in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 38, who was one of the men, along with Ethan and Asaph, who also uh, have written psalms. Uh, he was one of the men, this Heman, put in charge of the bronze symbols when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem and to the house of the Lord, and then afterwards was appointed by David, this Heman was, to be a temple singer, to be a leader of the singing in the temple. And then we come to verse 1. And I would suggest it's very important for us to notice how this psalm begins. Because it's true that it is a dark psalm, it's, it's bleak, it's sad. Uh, we get to the end of it and we just think, Ugh. it's just kind of heavy, doesn't resolve as nicely as we'd like. And yet it's important to notice that this is not a faithless psalm. And we see that right at the very beginning. So, so notice how this begins. Look at verse 1 again with me. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. In light of what is about to come in the psalm, that is a remarkable beginning. That, that beginning sounds like what we would find throughout the psalms. Okay, another prayer of somebody uh, calling out to the Lord. But in light of the, the depths of the darkness that Heman is in as he's writing this, this is a remarkable start. He addresses the Lord and calls him God of my salvation. As dark as things are, and as much as he is under the heavy hand of God, Heman is still appealing to the God of his salvation. Things are rough for him. But he turns once more to his God and asks that his prayer would come before the Lord. And, and when he says that, when he's praying that his, when he's asking that his prayer would come before the Lord and that the Lord would incline his ear to hear Heman's cry, he's asking for a favorable response. That's what he's desiring here. Of course God's going to hear him as he talks, as God would always know what exactly he is saying before he even says it. When he asks this, when he's saying, let it come before you and incline your ear, he's asking for a favorable response. And so remarkably, this begins with yet another appeal to his God, though he is in depths of darkness. And then in verse 3, he begins to unfold why it is he is being forced to make this plea again. He says, for my soul is full of troubles. That is a painful Line. I'm full of trouble and anguish, he says. There's not just one thing, but there are many things that are aggravating my soul. He says, My life draws near to Sheol. Now, Sheol is a, this is a general reference to the place where dead people go. Sometimes when it is used in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it seems clearly to be a reference to hell, uh, to, to the place where the wicked will go when they die. Uh, Psalm 9, verse 17 is, is one such place. But there's other times where it's, it's used more generically to speak of death, where this concern as here is of, of, of dying and going down to the tomb. That's what he's saying that he's drawing near to death. That's what he's getting at here. And when we'll come back to this, more in, in a bit when we get to verses 10 to 12. But he, he's, he's saying here that he is drawing near to, to death. Now it's, it's quite possible, probable even, that he means this quite literally, that he really uh, thinks he is, he is going to die if this continues, if the Lord does not uh, answer him. We don't know specifically what the situation was that this man faced. So quite, it might, he might quite literally mean he's, he's, he's on the verge of death. Uh, but I think most certainly this is a figurative description of what he is feeling and experiencing spiritually. He is wasting away. And if the Lord does not help him, he feels that this will end in ruin. And he goes on to say, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. He is counted by others 
to be those among, among whom go down to the pit. Others consider him as good as dead. They've written him off as forsaken. And he adds, I am a man who has no strength, verse 5, like one, who's set, like one set loose among the dead. He is cut adrift, as one commentator puts it, to just wander among the dead. He is, he is dead while yet living. This is how he feels. And he continues, he adds that, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He seems to be describing himself in a situation like that of a soldier who is wounded and is bleeding out on the field of battle, who calls for help, but there's nobody there to hear him. He's alive, but he's expiring. And soon, if, if nobody responds, if God just leaves him, he's going to be tossed in just a mass grave of nameless soldiers. It's as if he is one that go, God no longer takes into account. This is how he feels. And then in verse 6, he acknowledges that ultimately, God is the one who has done this. Whatever the various immediate problems were that he was facing, behind them stands the sovereign God who has sent these things his way. So look at verse 6 again. Notice, he says, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Again, he is in the pit He's in a dark place. Waves crash over him. Friends are abandoning him. And ultimately, he's acknowledging here that this is ultimately God's doing. Right? He, he calls this even God's wrath upon him. He feels God's burning displeasure as he considers his experience and what is happening to him. He, he cannot see God's ultimate plan in this. This just feels like anger poured out upon him. And he knows that ultimately God is in control of these things. Friends have even abandoned him, he says. And he feels boxed in. He feels there's no way of escape. He cannot seem to avoid this. He cannot seem to do anything about this. Uh, we should not pretend or, or dismiss this too quickly and think that, you know, it, there was just some simple fix that, that Heman could have employed and this all would have been better. Uh, surely he has tried those things. And yet the situation persists and he's struggling to see why this is. And his eyes, he says, grow dim or they're languishing through sorrow. He's fading here. Do you sense, do you, as you read this, do you feel the dreadful pain that he is in, the, the, the Job-like situation. But he continues, he says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. He languishes, his eyes grow dim, he feels stuck, he cannot escape, but he has not quit praying throughout this. Every day he calls upon the Lord. He looks to God for help. He, he's there with outstretched palms, reaching out to God, as if he's reaching for him, looking for help. And then in verse 10, he begins asking this series of questions. He says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? In all of these things, he's dealing with this topic of death, right? Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed, that's those who are dead, he speaks about his love being declared in the grave, those who are dead. Is your faithfulness in Abaddon, which is essentially uh, a synonym for Sheol? Are your wonders known in the darkness? That's death. Righteousness in the land of forgetfulness, again, the place of death. 
This is all dealing with death. As we look at these questions and we consider them, I think it raises a couple of questions for us, a couple of questions that you might have. Is the author suggesting here that there is nothing beyond the grave? It might seem to suggest that upon initial read. Of course, some people out there do try to suggest that the Old Testament doesn't know anything of the resurrection, really. But that's simply not true. I would acknowledge, I would say, that it's not as clear, perhaps, as the New Testament. There's not as much instruction on this subject in the Old Testament as there is in the New. But it is there in the Old Testament. Jesus himself, when he was dealing with Sadducees and the Pharisees, he taught the resurrection of the dead, and he appealed to texts from Exodus to do so. Daniel 12, verse 2, has a very clear statement about the resurrection. The Psalms, as we saw in Psalm 16, they prophesied the resurrection of, uh, of, of, of the Christ, of the Messiah, which implies the resurrection of his people as well. Uh, additionally, Psalm 116, verse 15, has this uh, remarkable statement. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's a familiar line we've heard at funerals and so on. But, but how could that possibly be unless the enemy of death is overcome in some way. Uh, if, if We know death is the result of sin, and if there's no understanding of resurrection, of death being conquered for people, then it would not be precious in any way uh, for the Lord's people to die. And so there is a hope of resurrection in the Old Testament, and it becomes just that much clearer and more, again, as, as more instruction comes when in, in the New Testament. So then, If there's a hope of resurrection, then why such distress about death in this psalm and in some others? Why not take a more Pauline approach, if you will, where he says to live is Christ and to die is gain? Many times he just seems, Paul seems very unfazed at the prospects of death because he knows to live is Christ but to die is gain. What is the concern that Heman has here as he writes these things? Well, the theater of this man's living and his suffering is the earth, is this world. And the testimony of God, the testimony to his righteousness, his greatness, his faithfulness, it is kept alive or it is testified to on this earth and in this world by his people as they proclaim his word. And so he seems to be have the attitude here that if, if you, Lord, pursue this worm to death, if, if I die, then who is going to testify to your steadfast love and faithfulness on this earth? This is where I do that. This is where I testify to your greatness and to your righteousness. But if I go down to death... I no longer do that. I will not be proclaiming your steadfast love to people in Abaddon. Moreover, I think also the concern he has here is that his enemies would would seem to be right. They would seem to maybe draw, they would probably want to draw that conclusion that they are right when they taunt Heman and the people of the Lord, saying, where is your God? So I won't be able to proclaim your righteousness and greatness to people if if you abandon me and I die here. And then the enemies, your enemies, are going to blaspheme you, and this in every way is not going to be good. That seems to be his concern. And then additionally, it is worth noting that under the Old Covenant, there were certain promises in the Old Testament made to Israel that if they trusted in him and if they kept his covenant, that God promised them blessings which included life in the land of Canaan. And so, with that in mind, as men who trusted the Lord under the old covenant, as they suffered and as they were on the verge of death, particularly when that person is a king like David or a uh, 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 one of the other national leaders like Heman was, and these are men who trust in the Lord, when they experience this 
suffering, when they are on the verge of death, then it seems to them that the promises and faithfulness of God are at stake as they languish. And so Heman wants God's name to be proclaimed. And there is also concern that if God doesn't come through and, and seem to keep his promises, then what would that say of him to other people? And so this is not just concern that he is going to die, but it is very much a spiritual battle. Uh, what, what, what does this say of God if he doesn't come through with what he has promised to his people? So I would suggest that this is perhaps similar one similarity uh, to us, to believers today, who are under the new covenant. We don't have the same promise of life in the land of Canaan today. But I would suggest that this is similar to us when, this is just one example, when, for example, a believer wrestles with the assurance of their own salvation due to an awareness of their own sin. So let me explain. As, as believers in the Lord, now, we have promises from God. He has made promises. His word says that if we are trusting in Christ, that we are new creations. That we are now dead to sin and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. We are told that the root of the tree has now been made good. We are told in Romans 8 that God has predestined to conform us to the image of his Son. And these are great promises that we will overcome sin, that he will do good work in us. But then as we go, what do we find? We find we still sin. And, and so we fight that sin, we battle it, we pray, we read, but we still have sinned. And we begin to wonder sometimes, is this promise true? What of this promise? God, you've said you will not abandon me. You've said I am a new creation, but I see this sin and, we, and I'm struggling with this. Is this true? Will you keep me or am I just going to fly off the rails here? Would this not reflect badly on you if you do not do a mighty work in me, since I trust in you? I think this is the kind of thing that Heman is battling here. Where are your promises, O oh God? And what will this say to people if you don't answer my cry? I will not be there to proclaim your righteousness and your faithfulness to people. Good verse 13, we'll continue. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. He is not done praying. He does not understand. He's struggling, but he continues to pray. Verse 14. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me. He's, again, he's asking the question, why? Why is this happening? It's just the reality is it isn't always obvious or clear why a person suffers. Again, surely this psalmist tried to figure this out. But he was having trouble grasping what's going on here, God's intentions here. This seems like over-the-top discipline. It seems like he's been forsaken. The why question, it is good. It is a good question to consider. It can lead to healthy self-examination. It can lead to discovery of sin that we then can repent of. And sometimes, if we can discover why we're in a particular trial, it might serve as we seek to fix it. It might serve to cut that trial short. That's good. That's right. But sometimes it just isn't that simple. Sometimes we search for why and a clear reason just does not emerge. I'd say that's often the case. It's just not simple. And that's what's happening here. Back in verses 10 to 12, in those questions that he raises, Heman references the wonders of God. He talks about God's steadfast love, his faithfulness, and his righteousness. These were things that Heman knew about. 
He had witnessed and he had read about these things in the scriptures, in God's law. He has known what it is to have God's smiling face upon him, to know God's favor. And now that it is gone, the pain is so severe and he's asking, why do you hide your face from me? Again, this is a mature man. He has experienced the goodness of the Lord and now it has turned to darkness and he, he's reaching and he's calling out to God. And he returns, he continues in verses 15 to 18 to lament his situation, again acknowledging that God is behind it. So look at those verses again. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Derek Kidner has a helpful paragraph on this final section. I just want to read that to you. It's brief. Kidner writes, We have already noted the singer's persistent prayer. Verses 1, 9, and 13. Now the psalm will end with bewildered questions. The repeated why of verse 14 to which the only response appears to be a rain of blows, as unremitting as his cries. His cries, which these, these blows persist all day long, verse 17. Kidner continues, Looking back in time, this man can remember nothing but ill health and ill fortune. See that in verse 15. Looking Godward, he is terrified, verses 16 and 17. Looking for human comfort, he can see no one at all. That's verse 18. And then perhaps to our surprise, this is how it ends. There's no tidy resolution. There's no neat bow at the end of this. He has not come out the other side. He does not appear to feel any better. But he has brought his sorrows before the throne of God, and he has breathed them there. So what do we do with this? Uh, what, what do we make of this psalm? Well, I want to look at uh, five, just five implications, five takeaways from this. Uh, the first is that this psalm is further testimony that unrelieved suffering is a possibility for the believer. Unrelieved suffering is a possibility for the believer. And we, again, as we've seen before, we've discussed a number of times, these seasons can come and they can last a long time. And sometimes one blow comes hard on the heels of a previous one. Uh, at our men's breakfast uh, study the other day, and, and just where we are in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian, the main character, it's an it's a allegory of the Christian life. He, he has just finished his spiritual battle with Apollyon, the devil, and, and we, we might expect him to come through into a nice, pleasant place of rest afterwards, uh, but instead he enters in, directly into the valley of the shadow of death, and that is intentionally there, as we talked about on uh, yesterday, that's intentionally there uh, to show this very thing, that sometimes one trial gives way to another. We, we, we might think of Job. Job's trial was not finished overnight. It wasn't just a simple, oh, here's the problem, fix it and everything's okay. Many blows uh, befell him, and it was a long season where there was no relief. Again, Psalm 13, David cried out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? We know from the life of David he was forced to wander many years. From the time that he had been anointed king to the time he took the throne as king was as many as 10 or 15 years even. And quite likely some of his lamenting psalms were written during that time. We know some were for sure. And so 
Again, this testifies to this truth throughout what we see throughout Scripture, that sometimes those who trust in the Lord, even mature believers, experience these dark seasons, and it can last a while. And so you need to know this. You need to understand this. Receive this truth. That that if it comes upon you that day, that season, that you would not panic as if this somehow makes the whole of, you know, of Christianity untrue, or you begin to just doubt everything you've ever believed because you didn't think such difficulty could come. That's not the the case. You you need to know this to help prepare you for that season if it comes upon you. And likewise, to know this, that you might not dismiss another brother or sister who is enduring such a season. Secondly, this psalm implies that you should seek to be a faithful friend to those in such a season. So this builds on what I just said. The psalm implies that you should seek to be a faithful friend to those who are in this kind of a season. Uh, Notice in verse 4, again, that others counted him as one who goes down to the pit. In verse 8, we see that Heman's companions shunned him, and they considered him him a horror, or that could be translated an abomination. That is a very strong word. That is an about face for supposed friends. His word for companions is the word for knowing. These are the people who knew him. These are not just people out there that he knows through social media. These are supposedly those who know him, turning on him. In verse 18, we further see Heman's beloved And his friend, he says, have shunned him. The word beloved could refer to a spouse. Certainly we know Job's spouse was not particularly helpful in her recommendation to curse God and die. Uh, But that word doesn't necessarily mean spouse. Uh, it It can mean really anybody, anybody that he was particularly close to. A family member of some sort, a neighbor, a close Friend, somebody that Heman loved and was especially, felt was especially dear to him. Those closest to him, he has said, have shunned him. They've put distance between them. And now he's alone in the dark. Darkness is now his companion. He's been written off. There's no sympathy for him. And this shunning he's received has aggravated his woe. This is a heartbreaking situation. And it's reminiscent of what Job faced with his friends. And so we ought to see this and then seek to rise above this kind of so-called friendship and instead bear one another's burdens with patience. Someone else's struggle may seem simple to you. It often does. But rather than turning up your nose at them and assuming they're just, you know, pathetic or whatever, go to them. Bear them up. Pray for them specifically. Ask them how you might pray. Sit patiently with them. Again, if you don't know what to say, that's okay. Pray for them. Third thing, recognize that whatever the immediate cause of your suffering is, behind it is God. Whatever is the immediate upfront cause of your sufferings, behind those things is God. The author of this psalm, Heman, understands that behind what he's facing, behind the actions of his companions as they abandon him and shun him, Whatever else he's facing stands the almighty sovereign. Now, this isn't denying the responsibility and the culpability of his friends, but his worldview and his understanding of God is such that despite all the different immediate causes of his pain, be it a friend failing him, be it illness, be it the threat of of physical enemies, whatever else it was, behind all of that, God is the ultimate cause. 
That is, he knows that God could easily have ordered and ordained things differently if he so chose, but he hasn't. And so, as the psalmist addresses God, he refers to these events as your waves. He speaks of this all as your wrath. He says, you have put me in the depths. He says, you overwhelm me. Moreover, you have caused my companions to shun me. And then at the end, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. It is God, ultimately, who stands behind this. And once again, we find similarity in the life of Job. We know explicitly that Satan was at work in Job's case. We know that the Sabaeans raided Job and killed some of his family. We know that fires roared. We know that sickness struck Job. These were the immediate causes of Job's pain and his anguish. But Job goes to God knowing that behind all those things stands the Lord. Job 12.9, he says, Who among all these, he's talking about the creatures of the earth, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And when God responds, finally, towards the end of the book of Job, notice carefully, he does not blame shift. He does not say, whoa, whoa, Job, you know, you're, you're addressing me as if I did this, uh, but really it was Satan who did this. Uh, really your beef is with the Sabaeans. No, God does not do that. Instead, he helps Job understand that Job cannot possibly fathom the way of God and the way that he works, that he is far greater than Job has really recognized, and that it is therefore sufficient for Job to trust the one who created and rules all things in a way that we cannot possibly as finite beings get our heads around entirely. And it's enough for Job. He repents. He covers his mouth. So grasping that trials come ultimately from God is so helpful in enduring them with a measure of calm and quiet. This is the case because when, when these trials come, we can apply and appeal to the promises of God in those trials. We can think about what he told Job And we can remember that though we don't understand everything, we can't see, maybe even we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, let alone how this is all going to resolve. We look to the scriptures and we see the faithful God and we just stand saying that he will yet prove true, though currently the waves pour over me and I do not understand. Fourth takeaway. See here that God does not despise his children for crying out to him in our despair. We do not get it all figured out first and then go to God with a nice clean prayer. So given the previous point, if God stands behind the suffering, the trials we go through, it stands to reason It is entirely right, entirely appropriate to bring your sorrow to the one who can change your situation and deliver you. And of course, we've seen in the scriptures that prayer is one of the means through which God works. He is sovereign, but that does not mean we take a fatalistic view of events. Well, there's nothing I can do, so I'll just sit here. That's not what it means to trust that God is sovereign. Rather, in the mystery of God's rule, it is abundantly clear that he has ordained prayer as a means by which he moves and acts. And so we we come to him with hopefulness that he will incline his ear and hear us. And we continue to pour those prayers out. And we do so with hopefulness that he'll answer. Again, these do not need to be clean and pretty prayers. 
Look at the angst here. He's just pouring it out before the Lord. Who is his salvation? And so Psalm 88 is an example of what we might call persevering prayer. The sort of prayer that Jesus spoke of in in Luke 18 when he gave this parable and we're helpfully told up front that he gave the parable so that we ought to tell us to teach us that we ought always to pray and to never give up. The answer doesn't always come right away, but we keep going to the Lord in prayer. And the psalmist is doing that. He's in despair, but here he is praying again. Every day I call to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Though this man suffers and though he is weak, his faith is being proved along the way as he keeps coming in prayer to God his salvation. And isn't it interesting that of all the prayers that Heman probably prayed in his lifetime, this is the one that the Holy Spirit inspired and placed in Scripture. God does not despise the contrite heart. We saw that last week. He doesn't despise bringing out these griefs and pouring them out before him. We need to do that. It's good. Finally, fifthly, let this psalm remind you to place your hope ultimately on things above. To place your hope ultimately on things above. This psalm reminds us that life can be painful. It reminds us that you can go from seasons of great joy to extended seasons of pain in the blink of an eye. Many of you have experienced this. It's a phone call. It's a doctor's appointment. It's an accident. It's the loss of a loved one, whatever it might be. And this is just the reality of living in this fallen world. And so let this remind you to place your hope on things above, to place your hope in the fact that you, if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, are a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. The promises of the gospel cannot be taken from you. Though all else else in your world would seem to crumble, nothing can snatch that from you. And though painful trial will still come, though it will still feel difficult, there are eternal realities and promises to cling to. And so build that hope even now. The eternal hope for believers is spelled out even more clearly in the New Testament than it was in the Old. Than the the truths and the promises that this psalmist was working with as he penned this. This further revelation given in the New Testament makes the hope of the heavenly Jerusalem much clearer to us. In many churches throughout history, and I think even today, this psalm we're looking at, 88, has been read alongside Psalm 22 at Easter. And if you remember from Psalm 22, when that was preached several weeks ago by Harley, Psalm 22 is explicitly about the suffering of Jesus. And with the Psalms functioning as prayers of Jesus, we are again reminded that Jesus knew suffering in his humanity. He experienced it. He knows abandonment from friends. He knows what it is to have his soul sorrowful even to the point of death, he says in in Matthew, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what it is to die. Suffering is often the lot of God's people. And this was no less true for the head of God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his humanity. And so we remember, of course, that Jesus' suffering was redemptive. That he endured all that he endured, his suffering, on behalf of his people. On behalf of all who would repent of their sin and place their faith in him. And I don't, if that's not you, if you've not done that, then God calls you through his word to confess your sin, to acknowledge you fall short of his holiness, of his glory, of his law, of his standards, and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners and rose again from the dead. And if that is your trust and that is your boast, then you are, the scriptures say, a resident of the heavenly Jerusalem. And your sins 
God says, are forgiven. And Jesus will return one day, and your body will be raised to dwell forever with the God of your salvation in the new Jerusalem that Revelation 21 tells us will descend from the sky. This hope is certain because Jesus has risen from the dead in victory over death, and he will return, and his people will likewise rise. This hope is certain because God has promised that he will bring this about for all who are in Christ. And so, fix your eyes upon these realities and loosen your grip on this world. How this, as we strive to do this, how this will help you if and when darkness falls. And hear me, it doesn't mean that things will just be easy in that moment. The pain will still be real. Things can still get very difficult. But fight through that by seeking to think biblically and truthfully as you cling to the God of your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that as we suffer difficulty, that we are not alone. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who who knew, who came and in his humanity experienced suffering, but did so on behalf of those he came to save. Thank you that he has made a way for us to come to you and that we can come to you and pour out our griefs, we can pour out our laments, that we know you hear us, that, that we know you are for us because of what Christ has done. I pray that we would find hope in that. And for all of your children who are in this valley now, God, I pray that you would be merciful to them, that you would hear their cry, that you would respond favorably and with grace. Father, I pray that you'd make us a people who are patient with one another as we struggle and are patient with others as they struggle. Father, May we use the gifts you've given us to build each other up. And Father, we lament that we cannot be together in person right now. And we pray that you would speed an end to this all so we might gather and encourage each other and be strengthened. Father, thank you for Christ. I pray that you would set our eyes firmly on him and our hope that is to come and that we would be strengthened. I pray that as we endure difficulties that we would know that this will pass that we would be able to endure with confidence in you even when we can't see how it will all play out. We love you. We thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.